Welcome to livingpianos.com. I'm Robert Estra, and today we have the man of a thousand Steinways, the Steinway hunter, Bob Friedman. And Bob Friedman goes way back, and he's probably found more Steinways than anybody I know. And there's a lot of parallels in our lives. Bob is a piano technician. Of course, I'm a concert pianist, but we both got into pianos because of various reasons and have been involved with them our whole lives. And we're gonna have a nice, lively discussion here. So I wanna welcome Bob. This is Bob Friedman, everybody. Hi, Robert. Thank you so much for interviewing me. I appreciate it very much. It's a real pleasure, you know, and we've gotten to deal with each other over the years. And just a little bit uh, for people who are not familiar with you, because you're kind of like invisible to the public, but he's the man who locates and provides Steinways to countless stores all around the country and per perhaps around the world. Around and he's world. been doing it a heck of a long time. And the parallels in our lives are so interesting because I got into pianos because of my teaching and my performing. And tell us a little bit about how you got into it as a piano technician, I believe. Is that right, Bob? Uh, yeah, actually, this is the, I realized I was speaking with my wife today, and this is my golden anniversary, 50 years that I put my hands on a piano that needed a little bit of work. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, my father uh, was also a concert pianist, but he never toured. He trained uh, when he was uh, very early in life. And at a certain point in his teens, he put it down for a reason that, uh, well, you know, as a concert pianist, you're supposed to take the music out in front of you. You're supposed to memorize. Right. He, re he refused to do that. So his agent let him walk. He put the piano down shortly after that. He never picked one up again until 1971. I was 19 years old, actually 71. I was, uh, I was 17 years old. And there was uh, a gentleman who passed away that lived across the street from us. And there was a beautiful old Somer upright in there. And I went into the house, I saw it. The girl said it was for sale. I dragged my father in there because I had seen him play at family parties, but I really had no idea how, how accomplished he was. And uh, my mother and I begged him to buy the piano. He didn't want to do it, but we still begged him to do it. And he did it. He brought it home and he wailed on the piano. He played Rachmaninoff like the day he put the piano down when he was a kid. He'd never forgotten how to play. And uh, he had gone to work one day and I was taking a mechanical drafting architectural blueprint design in high school. So I had some really good teachers show me mechanical uh, know-how. And the piano had one note that was always not working up in the upper register. He'd play it and go and he'd hit it and then he'd come back. He never called anybody in. So one day when he was at work, I took the action out of the piano. My mother walked in the room. She goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to figure out what's wrong with this piano. And I noticed that one of the springs were out in the jack that, of course, pushes the hammer up. And uh, I fixed it. So I put it back in the piano. She said, you better get that back in the piano before your father gets, <laughs> you know, and he was, he was kind anyway, he wouldn't have. And later that night he came home from work and I watched, I never told him I did it. He went and played and that note worked. 
and he did a double take. I watched him, and he must have figured it fixed itself. <laughs> That's where it started for me. Wow. And, and that and that was probably four thousand Steinways ago. Yeah, four thousand Steinways. Woo. Well, yeah. I lived, you know, I lived, I, I lived in a truck for almost thirty years, traveling the country and buying and selling and meeting everybody I did business with and going in everybody's homes and having coffee with, you know, more people than Starbucks probably serves. <laughs> well, you know, I just read your book and I absolutely was was drawn page to page. It really is compelling. It's such a pleasurable read, The Steinway Hunter. I recommend it to people. And it brought back so many memories of my life going back to after I graduated from music conservatory. I was teaching piano. And the first question I would always ask people is, do you have a piano? And it was surprising how many people wanted lessons who didn't have pianos. And I, I knew that that couldn't work. So that's how I kind of got into finding pianos. And, uh, you know, we could talk, swap stories about some of the crazy ways we found pianos. <laughs> I, I, I'll be honest with you, I probably have 300 stories, but it got to the point where after three years of editing and 20 years of writing just 25 stories, because I'm not a writer, but with the help of my dear wife and some very, very uh, <clears throat> highly skilled editors who also had pianos in their lives and they're famous editors, book editors, and all of us had something in common is that they loved the piano and therefore they helped me with it. And to, uh, you know, to finish another set, you know, 30, 40, 50 story. I mean, it's, we, we, we have so many stories, we could probably sit here <laughs> until all our hair falls out, just telling stories. Well, you know, I, I believe you, as, as I experienced, you know, one of the things about pianos is that you got to move them. And I moved, I don't know how many hundreds, maybe, maybe more than hundreds of pianos. And that was back in the day that it was mostly uprights and mostly those big, heavy, those monstrosities and I don't know how the heck I move. I'm not a big man but I never hurt my back to this day knock on wood is strong I because I always lifted correctly <laughs> so I've, I've had nine rescinded discs in my back over the years Ooh. and but you know I've always uh, I've always strengthened myself and I've come back and the one thing that was and I'll show this on the camera because I carry it with me because it reminds me of a very good friend who uh, is in the dedications in the book his name was Henry Karen and he's the one who uh, it's this it's the story of the dawn of the Steinway hunter and mm -hmm. this blue dolly <laughs> is actually a picture of Henry's dolly when we both had a blue dolly and he's passed on now. He, he looked just like Jimmy Cagney. It was interesting to, you know, but he pointed me in a direction when I was very young. He said, and he saw that I had a lot of children. I had five children, actually. And he said to me, he says, he saw me driving up in an old beat up Matador wagon with a U-Haul on the back. And I used to deliver basically no name pianos to him. And then he had one Steinway. He says, he says, he looked at me and he goes, you're never going to be able to support them with that. He says, that's the piano you want to go for. He says, go for that and you'll do okay. And that's where it started. And he gave me the tip. He said, stay with Steinway. 
And, and mm -hmm. Well, in the used market, there's nothing like Steinway. Everybody knows the name and the power of that company. And it's the piano that everybody looks to restore. Because the fact of the matter is, in the used market, the Steinway holds its value better than other pianos. So if someone is going to restore a piano, to put the thousands of dollars in one piano, they might as well put it in a piano that's going to sell for more. And that's the conventional wisdom. Now, here at Living Pianos, we actually celebrate all the great American and European pianos, which can represent phenomenal value. And plus, as you well know, each piano is unique. And there are some great pianos from a variety of manufacturers, but a great Steinway is still a great piano, and there's always people looking for them. They, they call it the standard piano of the industry. Mm-hmm. It, uh, you know, and it, what's interesting, and, and you, I'm sure you know this as a, as a, as a technician yourself, somebody who probably, you know, works on the pianos as they get to the point where you, you know, get them ready for people, is that 1878 was the design of the tubular action frame and the duplex scale. It hasn't changed much since then. Yes. It's kind of amazing that pianos from the 1880s they had some of the same scale designs they're still making today. And there was a documentary about Steinway a, a number of years ago. And they said that if you took somebody from back then, from the 19th century, and transplanted them into the New York factory today, there'd be a couple of new rigs, but they'd be pretty much right at home because fundamentally they're building the pianos the same way they did over 100 years ago, which is pretty remarkable. Absolute geniuses they were. <laughs> they were. And they didn't have long lives because they, 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 every time they got a little bit of a disease, it took them over because they were actually, they almost died from exhaustion because they worked so hard. Yeah, that yeah. affecting everything that they did. So I remember back in the day before the internet was a thing and what I would do, and I don't know if, if you can relate to this, my wife and I would, would hang out downtown. We were living in Bloomington, Indiana. I had graduated from school there in piano performance and kind of fell in love with the small town. And we'd hang out at the book stand waiting for the recycler to come out, you know, the, the, uh, the public, the, the classified newspaper, because as soon as it would come out, we'd make a beeline for it to see if there were any good pianos in there. And then, you know, get the, we have loaded quarters in our pockets to go to the nearest payphone before cell phones. And then if there were any deals, try to get there and, you know, talk about the hunt, right? Uh, you, you, oh, you're right. We do peril. You absolutely right it's, it's uh, uh, wow that's that's very cool now over the years you know it's kind of interesting because i always felt that that was like the the ultimate way to get pianos is to be there first get there and find the deals of the ones that really need restoration that somebody else wouldn't even know what to do with but, but it's, it's a diamond, diamond in the rough, rough. But, but then, then later on I, I met some people who did things a little differently more like a patient fisherman casting the net and just waiting, which is another approach instead of the hunter. But since you wrote the book, uh, you know, the Steinway Hunter, obviously you've been aggressive in finding these instruments in all sorts of ways and wondering how technology has changed your whole way of working. When there was limited technology, uh, there in, in the story, The Dawn of the Steinway Hunter, actually my mother was, was a, a very helpful tool and a catalyst to advertising for me because uh, when I finally decided that that was the way, you know, to earn enough money to keep 
food in the house <clears throat> because you know a little bit of Wurlitzer, a little bit of you know a little bit of chronic and Bach. You know they didn't, you couldn't you know raise the bar that way financially. So when mm-hmm. I finally decided to go with Steinway and stay with Steinway. My uh, my mother worked in in uh, USA Today classifieds, and her her this is in one of the stories. Uh, herself and two other women actually designed the USA Today classified network in a Gannett newspaper. They picked three people that they thought could put this format together, and then she explained to me <clears throat> that if I knew of newspaper networks, and there were many newspaper networks in this country. And she said, go to the library and go in the Gale Book of Publications, and you'll find every printed newspaper in the country. And what you can do is you can either call them up on the phone or go through a tele-network and just give them your ad, which was Steinway Grand Piano Wanted, any age, any condition, we'll take cash and pick up, which means I had to live in a truck for a three decades and uh so i pushed 10 different buttons that were in this book and it's it, it was it was phone well, there's no pushing buttons it wasn't a computer you have to get on the phone you have to call somebody in in the department whether it was knight ritter or gannett um or uh whatever you know there was the, there was a hundred networks out there but they covered each state or would go state to state and there was about 25 networks out there, and I had to call them on the phone and ask them to run the ad. And they wouldn't take credit cards in those days. You had to send them a check. So once your check got there, they printed it. This was all, everything was done by hand. And uh, then all of a sudden, your ads started running in 15 states at the same time. When the calls started coming in, then you had to get in a truck and you ask them what they had. They would tell you there was no photographs. You couldn't do what we do today by seeing on the internet what you're buying. And uh, you literally had to live in a truck and you had to live at truck stops because there was no cell phones and there was no GPS. So the roadmaps were it for me. I mean, that was, I, I, I had piles of maps and, uh, and that's, and then you went into, you know, people's houses and you, and you, you know, you became friendly and they let you in the house at that time right. and, you made the, and you made the deal and you carried the piano out. And if you weren't traveling with a shotgun person or somebody, you'd have to go to the local gin mill, hire some people to help you move the piano, put the truck. <laughs> and by the time you were done, wherever, whatever part of the country you were, your truck was filled and you came back to New York City, which is where I saw yeah. most of them in those days. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> and everybody crowded around and they did their picks. Now, of course, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are watching this wondering, how can they find a Steinway? And here's a question I have for you. Of all the Steinways that you say, 4,000 Steinways, how many, like out of 100, are actually like fairly good to go without doing like substantial work? Very few. <laughs> very, very few. You, you can have a piano that, that, that's 10 years old that a cat lived in. <laughs> you 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 can have a piano that's five years old that the dog got jealous of the person playing it and chewed the legs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and a story actually I was telling somebody the other day, which was interesting, is in the dead of heat in the summertime when I would go maybe as far as Chicago or Indiana or down to Texas and then come back to New York, you're loading the pianos side by side in the truck and you're you have a 24 foot you know, truck and you probably get, I think, 12 to 16 pianos in there. And 
when you would get back, there was something very interesting that happened. When you were in the house, when you're in the house, everybody's house has a certain scent in there, you know, whether it's what they've cooked their whole lives or, or what the animal smells like, you know, whatever, whatever it is, the, the, you know, every, everything that your house collects, your piano collects because of the felt in the piano, it picks up the smell, fish, you name it, it picks up, you know, so, so you have to deodorize the piano when you get it back. And when it gets in the felt, then it's a hundred or an 80 or a hundred year old piano, you're not getting it out. So, mm-hmm. so therefore the piano, you know, needs upgrading, restoration, new hammers, new felt everywhere. So when I got back to New York city one day and I opened the back of the truck, it near the smell from all these pianos being in people's houses for a hundred years, nearly knocked me off the back. I opened it and because it was hot in there and I was like, and the smell came out and almost knocked me over. It was so disgusting. But what it was, this was the smell of every piano that was in everybody's house for 80, a hundred years. Oh my gosh. And I equated that smell to the smell of success. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, if you're willing to put that work into them, you know, and the funny thing is, you know, we get web forms literally every day if people have pianos for sale and everybody, almost everybody says, oh, the piano's perfect. It's great. And people don't know how much maintenance a piano needs in order to be good. To give you one extreme example that is really a funny story. Uh, there was a piano, this is back in Indiana years ago, and somebody said, oh yeah, I got this great piano. So we go out and it's way out in the country and we get there and we're walking through a field and we get to, believe it or not, a greenhouse, a greenhouse. And in the back of the greenhouse, and by the way, this it's just a dirt you know, uh, floor. And we get to the end of it and sunk maybe a foot into the mud is this big old upright. And you could see that the, the wood was destroyed. It was just, you know, and this is a greenhouse. It's humid, of course. And, and I said apologetically, well, I'm really sorry, but I'm not gonna be able to do anything. And he goes, why not? I said, well, you know, there's obviously some water damage. He goes, he says, water damage? That was from the fire. <laughs> No, no, that's the fire. Oh my gosh. You know, as if there's something you could do with this old upright sinking in the mud, been in a fire and cut. Oh my gosh. So yeah, that's an extreme example. But even a piano, somebody buys a piano with the best intentions and then they never tune it. They don't understand that that piano degrades just from not playing it and not servicing it. The piano is going to take a tremendous amount to get back on any kind of performance level. It takes a ton of work for a neglected piano. One of the reasons uh, I actually got into wholesale supply, you would say not supplying the public, but supplying dealers, first of all, there's only so many people in your public area, unless you're in a very, very busy area. I didn't live in a very busy area, but there's thousands of dealers and hundreds of rebuilders. So everybody always needs stock all the time. So it keeps moving. But the reason that I got into it was because I would find myself reconditioning, not rebuilding, even though I did a lot of rebuilding, reconditioning and some rebuilding, a lot of pianos. And in the end, I really couldn't get the retail money out of it that I wanted because there weren't enough people in my area to buy. So I would wholesale it to a dealer somewhere, which means I kind of was wasting my, even though, because you know how much work it takes to put a piano back in shape when nobody has taken care of it. And I was Mm -hmm. giving my work away. And I was Mm -hmm. thinking to myself, 
if I'm going to continue to give my work away, I'm not going to earn any money. So yeah. So you found a niche for yourself, and you know you're you're one of the only people who really specializes in this. It's it's really a niche that you've carved out. And what's cool is that you've managed to transcend into modern technology and the internet. And I'm sure that helps you tremendously. And hopefully you're not still moving them yourself. I, I the heaviest thing I probably pick up is either a drumstick or a paintbrush, <laughs> or maybe Very a tennis small. racket every now and then when my knees will allow me. There you go. No, it's, well, it's, it's, uh, and I'm still finding and buying more than 200 pieces a year. Wow. That's impressive. Well, you know, of course, what we do kind of obfuscates the whole problem of a market area because we started Living Pianos online uh, piano store back in 2006, kind of before everybody else thought of it. And now, of course, it's the way everybody is buying everything. Right. And because of media and the quality of the internet, if you've got decent speakers hooked up, you can actually get a really good preview of a piano. Of course, some players would have to play the piano. And of course, we welcome them to fly in, which some people do, but many people don't know enough about pianos anyway. And will you, 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 you play so well and your recordings are so good that they're getting almost exactly what it would sound like in their house. I've listened to your recordings and I mean, All right. like, you know, they don't, they don't, uh, how can I say they don't sway They're You know, they're, the volume is right. The instruments are done right. So it's, uh, well, you know, I, I was very lucky to not only grow up in a musical household, my father, Morton Estrin was a concert pianist, but he also had professional recording equipment in his studio in our home. And I always got his hand-me-down tape recorders. And I also attended his recording sessions. So I've always had a passion for music technology. So it kind of goes hand in hand. And I also love photography. So it kind of takes all my skill sets and kind of wraps them all up. Uh, and you know, it's, it's a blast and I get to meet other people who love the piano. And now I'm doing a bunch of teaching. As a matter of fact, I've got students in Australia and Pakistan, Scotland, Alaska, all over the world. That's and the so power nice. of the internet is just so incredible uh, really that is. I can connect with these people. So anyway, I want to tell everybody that if you, if you are into piano and want some great stories, because you're a heck of a storyteller, Bob. Well, I, you know, these, these, the, I, I, the odds were with me. If I was on the road <laughs> and, I, and I packed a couple thousand pianos, I probably have a couple hundred good stories. <laughs> there but you go. It seems, <laughs> it seems like a lot of this stuff that happened when I, in the, in the eighties, I started collecting uh, funny circumstances. And I was thinking to myself, if I continue to do this, I might get enough stories to put a book together. And somehow you did. I mean, it's a, and it's a great read. And the Steinway Hunter, I think it's available at Amazon. Also, can you get it at uh, bookstores as well? You can get it at Barnes & Noble. You can get it at Walmart. It's oh, man. but Am Amazon is the quick one. Yeah, Amazon's yeah. Well, I'll put some links below so that uh, people can check it out. I mean, if you love the piano, you're going to love this book. I can tell everybody out there. So I, I want to thank you for the service you do for the whole industry, as well as, you know, a, a secondary way to the consumers, because who knows how many of these pianos would end up in the landfill if you didn't rescue them and find people to restore them. I That was one of the things you just gave me chills, because that's one of the things that actually got me 
right in the truck also because when the phone calls started coming in when I was running nationwide advertising it was like I would say well you sure you don't want to keep it in the family say no we're downsizing and if we don't donate it we're probably just gonna you know have somebody come and take it to landfill oh. I said don't do that uh. it was like so you really feel like you know you're not just bringing music to people but you're keeping especially Steinways that are really made to last I, I, I don't joke around. I say it's a 300-year piano. <laughs> and I mean, stuff that came out of the 1870s, people are restoring it now, you know, 1870s, 1880s. So if, the, if it lasted that long, that means the next restoration will last that long. We won't be here. And somebody <laughs> will want it again. But they'll still be around. So it's, it's a little bit of living history. And I think about the thousands of pianos that living pianos has restored and brought back to life and and people will pass those down to future generations because you know they they for the most part with a few exceptions 99% of pianos aren't made that way anymore you know it's a it's a lost art that handwork and the, the quality of the woods and all that before we go i think you had a couple of artifacts you wanted to share is that right uh, i actually do um, there's a couple uh, there's a couple stories in the book actually uh there's a story in the book it's called 62554 and this is the piano right here and it was in my home for a short time and i ended up selling it and it's actually the numbers of my birth date backwards <laughs> and what was interesting but sad was that my mother had just passed away and I'd had a trip planned. So uh, I, uh, I waited a week, not quite a week. And then of course, all these appointments were set up across the country. So I had to get on with it. And it was uh, almost three o'clock in the morning when I finally got to a gentleman's house in Cleveland. And I opened the piano and I looked and I saw the numbers backwards. And I looked at him and I go, I know those numbers. And I realized that it was my birthday backwards, almost like maybe from the piano inside looking out at me. And it was just after my mother had passed away. Oh, wow. So some people think it's creepy. I don't because I brought it home and I'd actually sold it to a couple, uh, a, a lawyer, and accountant, male, female, a man and woman who had a big church that they had just uh rebuilt again i'll show you and it looks like this and wow the filigree, the filigree work in the front when i described it to them when i advertised it they said that's exactly what we're looking for because because everything in the church has this design in it so they came and they purchased it it's a uh, 1870s steinway upright that was completely restored before i purchased the piano so it had, I mean, everything inside, new board block strings, action, young gentleman's father had restored the piano, his father had passed away, and uh, and he sold it to me. And when I sold this piano, they wanted it bad enough to where the number that they gave me helped me with a deposit on a house that I bought that I raised my children in. Wow. So it actually almost felt like my mother was helping me. <laughs> so How do you it, like it, that? It, 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 it was, you know, and if, if, if you buy the book or, you know, somebody gets their hands on the book and they read 62554, they'll understand. <laughs> Fantastic. That.
that one. I'll leave you with uh, one interesting coincidence that we once faced uh, about 10 years ago. We got from two different, completely different sources, two Steinway Model M, five foot seven grand pianos, both in mahogany. And they ended up in, uh, we were living uh, in a live work loft in uh, the Santiago Arts District in, in um, Orange County, California at the time. And they were right next to each other. And we were shocked to discover that they were one serial number apart. They were, they must have been next to each other in the factory floor. It was the last digit that was and they one stayed off. And they stayed together. Yeah, but they weren't. They just were reunited. They came, we just happened to get those from two different sources. And they, there they were reunited after all, some of the 1930s. Can you believe it? What are the chances of that? <laughs> see, see, that was, that, that was meant for you to be there. Yes. And, and, yes, and we've so, had many things that were meant for us to be there in this industry. Absolutely. And I hope that all the people who have pianos from you and pianos from us are still playing them and enjoying them and, and that future generations get to enjoy those pianos. And I want to thank you so much, Bob, for coming, joining us thank here you, Robert, and sharing thank your you stories so, so. and your wonderful book, which I encourage everybody to get, The Steinway Hunter. And listen, you have a great day and we'll you be too. in touch soon. All right. You take care. I look care. forward to it. Thanks, all right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.